Hello, and welcome back to the Clavio Data Science Podcast. This is your first time joining us. I hope you enjoy your stay. If you're returning, welcome back. I'm your co-host, Michael. And I'm your co-host, Zach. This month, we'll be talking about the practical side of being a data scientist or someone who works with a data science team for your job. In particular, Zach, actually, I have a question for you before I kick off and start asking people questions. If you had to estimate, just a ballpark estimate, how many distinct tools do you use in a single day? And I'll, <laughs> I'll be a little more specific here. Obviously, something like Python. In theory, you could call that one tool, but let's be a little more specific. Like Python's a very large category. If you had to break that down to large packages or sets of packages as well within Python. Yeah, I think this is what's so, I don't know, weird about being a data scientist and, and you know, probably for any engineering job is that there's just such a wide breadth of tools and really specific information that you need mm -hmm. to know. Like you might learn methods in school, you might learn kind of the, I don't know, ideology and, and frameworks for thinking about data science problems. But mm -hmm. in practice, you know, you're not implementing linear regression. You need to know the specific packages that you're going to use for every method. And there are mm -hmm. many different packages, many, you know, different options and then kind of frameworks that those fit into. So, you know, on a given day, you know, we were a Python house here, but there are several different kind of high level Python packages that I use. And within those various frameworks like scikit-learn, but then, you know, I'm you know, using grid search and I'm, I'm using pipelines to compile different methods into one overall model. But then of course you have to pull your data out and you have to, you know, do some visualization. So, you know, and and it doesn't stop there either. Right? Oh, yeah. you, also, you have <laughs> to write things up the at the end of the day. You have to present <laughs> things. You have to right. share things with collaborators. You have to expense your... If, if you have expenses, right. you have to expense those through some method. There's a just gigantic proliferation of tools that help you do the job of being a data scientist. And I think what's interesting is, I mean, we have a set of tools that we use here, but even just the set that I use may be largely different from someone else on my team. They may have a mm -hmm. whole different workflow and, and different preferences for how they solve problems. And then, you know, I have friends who are data scientists who only work in, you know, Julia or you mm -hmm. know, only work mm -hmm. in R or MATLAB or, you know, any of these other yeah. languages. And then that's a whole other interface for getting that data and, and using oh, and it. beyond what language do you work in how do you actually access it what sort of <laughs> you know what tool are you using to actually write your code right <laughs> yeah yeah so this is exactly why we wanted to have this episode there is this gigantic proliferation of tools there are so many out there to choose from there are so many legitimate reasons to choose different tools for different settings we wanted to go through a little bit of why do people love the tools that they love? Why do people enjoy using the tools that they enjoy using? That's what we're going to talk about today. We've brought on a number of people from the data science team and who work with the data science team, and we're going to ask them a simple question. What is your favorite tool that helps you do your job and why? Let's go ahead and start with those conversations. Annika, this is your first time, so we are particularly excited to have you. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. So just to give a little context before we dive into the question of the day, I would love to hear a little about who you are and what you do here at Clavio. Yes, I just recently started at Clavio as a data scientist and I've been integrated onto the onboarding team. So I've been working on some projects related to how we can improve onboarding success and new customers at Clavio. 
And we're going to ask you the same question that we've asked everyone on today's episode, which is what is your favorite tool that you use to do your job? My favorite tool is definitely Jupyter Notebook. I'd say I use it every day and I think it's really useful. Nice. Yeah, that, that is a great answer. Tell me a little bit more about that for people who might not know about Jupyter Notebook. Maybe just give a high level summary of what it is. Yeah, absolutely. So Jupyter Notebook is an IDE that allows you to locally run your live code, but also include figures, visualizations, text components, even interactive apps all in a single place. And they're able to do this since Jupyter Notebook has these code cells compared to other IDs like VS Code that you just have to run all of your code at one time. So it makes it a little unique. Yeah, the code blocks of the notebook is so helpful. And I don't know if I hope that there are not a lot of people out there who are programming in Python for data science and don't use this because it's a really, really awesome feature. But I guess what are like the alternatives? What what did you used to use before coming to Jupyter Notebooks? Or have you always been a Jupyter Notebook person? No, I have not always been a Jupyter Notebook person. I was actually a little hesitant to switch. I used to use VS Code throughout my schooling and my first couple of internships. And those were generally more focused around more traditional software engineering than data science roles. Then in my last internship as a data scientist, I used Jupyter Notebook exclusively, and I found it really useful for things across the data science kind of workflow. So from initial cleaning and exploration of the data, testing hypotheses, sharing those results, and then also the actual modeling and comparing results there. I thought that Jupyter Notebook was a lot more powerful and useful in that case compared to VS Code, which I was using before and haven't really looked back since. It is so much better for data science. It really is optimized for the data science workflow. And I think, yeah, sharing results is really helpful because you can, it just generates a markdown file that has all the visualizations and, you know, you can style it in various ways, you know, as, as you can with any markdown file. So it's, yeah, it's a really, really good tool. Yeah, I similarly, it took a while for me to switch. I was taught Python in school with some really horrible development environment. I don't even remember what it was called. It was just a terrible, terrible text editor. And really having a good development environment really makes all the difference. It really, you know, makes it a much, much more pleasurable thing to code. Is there anything about Jupyter Notebook that you don't particularly like? Something that could be improved? You know, if if there's someone out there developing an ID and they, they want you to be using it, what could be improved? Hmm, that's a good question. I think one of the great advantages of Jupyter Notebook is being able to go back and rerun certain blocks with changes and compare these hypotheses and test different things. But also that allows you to run code in a nonlinear fashion, hypothetically. And that can definitely be problematic if you're changing variables that are then persistent elsewhere and going back and not running them in the same order. So I would perhaps some sort of flag or alert to warn users, because I think if you're not conscious about that, you can run into some trouble. Like a flag for what local variables have been defined kind of out of order. Yes, or if you're oh, yeah. things, maybe something like that. That does totally make sense. I feel like Jupyter Notebook is one of those tools that's so helpful that makes it so easy that sometimes I find myself having kind of bad practices. Like it's easy to just have a really 
messy notebook where you're running things out of order and then all of a sudden there's some chaos. Mm -hmm. But yeah, no, that that's that's a valuable tip if anyone is who wants to work on this. All right. Well, fantastic. I mean, I think that that's a great answer. It's definitely really helpful with Python data science workflows. I also use it pretty much every day. So yeah, it's a good choice. Well, that's about all the time that we have, but really appreciate you taking the time to come on and sharing this tool that you love to use. So thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Next up, I am joined by Ian. Ian, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Michael. Thanks for having me. Could you give me an intro on who you are and what you do at Clavio? Yeah, my name is Ian. I'm a senior data scientist at Clavio. I've been here for a little over two years. I've worked on a ton of different projects, but I am currently stationed at the data science research team. Thanks for joining again. Glad to have you on. I have one question for you. Yes. What is your favorite tool that you use that helps you do your job? Oh, my God. Can't believe you asked me the hardest question in the world. Um, <laughs> it, it is a think, tough one. It is a tough one. I, I don't apologize for that. Yeah. yeah. Asking the hard questions. I may not be able to answer your question, but I can talk about a couple of really, really cool, awesome tools that mm -hmm. I think are the best thing since sliced bread. So the thing that's on my mind the most right now is a Python package called NumPyro. It is a probabilistic programming language in mm. some embodiments of probabilistic programming. But I would just simplify that to say, like, basically, it helps me do things where I need to write a like a statistical model and then either do Bayesian inference on that or mm. maximize the likelihood of it. And because it's based on JAX, it actually excels at both MCMC mm. inference and because it's you know based off of the basically the inference of pyro it excels as well at doing variational inference so oh wow because it kind of hits both it is extremely flexible anytime you want to do bayesian inference yeah and oftentimes those are two methods that you might want to compare to each other in some way so Exactly. The flexibility yeah. to do both and not even have to call it different packages. That's really cool. Yeah. So I'm super excited about it, using it a ton. So one follow-up question I have on this, a question I've asked some people is, why do you prefer this over alternatives that do the same thing? It sounds like one of the reasons you might like this is because there isn't a clear alternative that does this exact thing. Are there any aspects of it that you particularly like outside of the general premise of how it works and what it does? Yeah, I think the ability to naturally write a model in Python is really nice. I've mm. used Stan before, but it requires you to use, you know, the Stan language that's kind of embedded in kind of a funky way into mm -hmm. Python. You just have to like write strings and do metaprogramming, huh. which is not super fun. I've also seen a lot PyMC3, or I think it's been rebranded now because they stopped counting every iteration PyMC. And it, I think, is also an extremely good package. But my understanding is a little bit more difficult to do things like variational inference. Mm -hmm. And my understanding also is that because it is this package that was adjusted and adapted over time as we had different breakthroughs in state-of-the-art, as well as shifts in how people like to do this kind of 
work in Python. It has a little bit of baggage in the syntax and in way that it works mm-hmm. to make it both backwards compatible-ish and also work with modern stuff. Yeah, that makes sense. You said there were a couple. Is there another tool you wanted to go into as well? Yeah, another tool that I am, I think, in love with is mm-hmm. Axe. So this is adaptive experimentation, hence mm-hmm. Axe. And it is a tool that was, I believe, released open source by Facebook when Facebook was Facebook. And it has a generic interface for doing just that adaptive experimentation. But to simplify, you can think of this as essentially helping out with either A-B testing or things like tuning hyperparameters in your modeling. And that's what I've used it for primarily. So I, I know that there are plenty of other packages out there, experiments that are great for doing hyperparameter optimization. Mm-hmm. But I really like the agnostic interface so that I could basically optimize anything as long as I've got a function that calls it and a, a way to specify what I'm searching over. I'm a little bit biased too, because under the hood, Axe uses Torch because it is mm. a Facebook product. <laughs> and I worked on GPyTorch, which is the Gaussian process Torch-based package that is actually being called underneath. So that you know, connection ties me back in. I always wanted to succeed. Yeah, very nice. A slightly different question because there are plenty of alternatives. You've talked about a few ways that you you prefer this package over some of the alternatives, but are there any specific aspects of it that really speak to you? I may not be able to answer this question fully because there are a ton of packages out there and I'm not abreast on the current state of all of them. Yeah, and, and that's totally fine. I don't think we need to know everything about every other package. <laughs> I'm just I'm curious why this particular one is one that you really like. Sure. I think something it does really well is choosing the correct inference scheme based on the Ah. information that you provide to it. Yeah. So if you provide three categorical variables, it is going to use, I believe, a categorical kernel that appropriately chooses, you know, what works best in that scenario. Mm -hmm. Or if you provide something that is integer valued, but there are a lot of values that you're choosing over, you'll default, I believe, to a continuous kernel for that and just discretize basically at call time. Oh, cool. Yeah, that does sound like a, a big plus, a big reason that that package is one to, one to enjoy and one to talk about. Yeah, I love it. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you for coming on and talking about a few of the tools that help you do your job that you love. Thank you, Michael. Mm-hmm. Next up, I am joined by Nick. Nick, do you want to give a quick introduction of who you are and what you do at Clavio? Sure. My name is Nick Vasella. I'm a senior product designer here at Clavio, and I've been on a bunch of different teams. Right now, I'm on the experiments team under the intelligence pillar for design, and I'm working on how customers will be able to leverage A-B testing and data to optimize their campaigns. Very nice. I have a simple question for you. What is your favorite tool that you use to do your job? That's a good question. Right now, our design team leverages Figma. It's a common design application. 
We, as a design org, are fortunate enough to have some developers that create some proprietary plugins for Mm. the application. So we're not necessarily like every other company that leverages the platform as is. We kind of manipulate it to do what we need it to do. Mm. We have a strong design system that basically helps all of our designers create a cohesive look and feel among every aspect of our product that we can ensure consistency mm-hmm. through those components and leverage patterns that are similar to each other that create intuitive experiences for our customers. Cool. I think we already got into this a little bit, but why do you like this tool so much? Why is Figma the the one tool out of out of many that you use that stands out? Well, actually, I love that. So, you know, thinking back at like how tools evolved, like just going down that history thought experiment, we have like Adobe, right? Where Mm -hmm. they had created Photoshop. And I mean, when I was going through school, I, I mean, my background is actually in graphic design. So a lot of people in my position today found their way to user experience design through other means, mine being graphic design. So largely we started leveraging those Photoshop and Illustrator type applications to create these sort of products. And they didn't have those sort of design system mentality software, like the, those those features available for us. So you started to see these startups come through and a prominent player was Sketch. Mm. And they started really starting to consider like what a component is and how it's a repeatable pattern throughout an application and giving us tools to say like, I need to drop in input field somewhere on mm. the page for you to, I don't know, type your first name, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I could do that over and over and over again. And my teammate could do that over and over and over again. And they'd be leveraging the same pattern, right? Oh, yeah. So yeah. Adobe never really caught up. And, you know, like that's what's tough with sort of these like large companies trying to pivot, you know, the larger ship you have, the harder it is to turn. So you started mixing something that like even pushed it further was like starting mixing prototyping with the actual design. Mm. And that's something where you started to see there was this company called Pixate, which actually had a ton of functionality around prototyping that got bought by Google and then disappeared. And as a designer, you were constantly learning all of these startup type applications. InVision mm. came in and started to be like a huge player in the the prototyping and design. And then they kind of got too big and their platform wasn't, in my personal opinion, (laughs) I I can't speak for everybody here, Mm -hmm. but my personal opinion was, is they were having a lot of issues like bug wise, they were not Uh, reliable. And I'm trying to give a presentation through one of their prototyping tools and like talking to the CEO and then like the prototype's not working. uh, Right. Can't have that. So, you know, that brings us to Figma where, you know, eventually you get a platform that really understands prototyping and design and how important design systems are Mm -hmm. to recently eating everybody's lunch to the point where Mm -hmm. Adobe bought them. So now we're back. (laughs) Here we go again, you know, starting at square one. But, you know, people are joking. Okay, now I'm going to go back to sketch. But (laughs) we start the cycle back over. Yeah, start the cycle over again. Exactly. So I am very excited that we are leveraging Figma. It is an industry standard. It does prototyping very well. It does the repeatable patterns and component library, like housing all of that information in there very well. 
being able to prototype accurately, being able to house those components consistently and being able to leverage them, it makes my life as a designer much easier. And when we go, it's all about the relationship you have with your developers. And the relationship we have is very good. You know, we work on in small teams, so you get to know everybody very well. And when I pull a component from the design system, I know it's going to look exactly like that in code. Nice. Or as close to that as possible, right? So, and I'm not trying to solve problems by creating new components. I'm leveraging, mm-hmm. you know, the systems we have in place. And that makes developments lives easier, you know? Mm-hmm. As well as yours, I imagine. Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. And and I know like there's another part to it that a lot, you know, that we talk about in the design community a lot, but doesn't get brought up enough is accessibility. Mm-hmm. So I know mm-hmm. that these specific components have the backend requirements that work with screen readers mm. very well and in other tools that help people that may need that extra help that it's it's reliable if i make a new component and it's not going through the design system it's not getting that quality assurance that it's going to work in all these different scenarios that the contrast ratios are right that people can read all the text properly that we're following i mean this is basic stuff for designers <laughs> like you should be doing this anyways <laughs> but i think it's good to mention that this tool helps with that and knowing that you're following the right process, that this tool fits within a process that allows us to have that consistency and accessibility standards. Yeah, that's awesome. Cool. Yeah. Th- this is convincing me. We like this discussion is fascinating to me. I think we need to have a longer discussion about just what design is and how designers do their jobs and how designers work with data science. We need to have a, a larger conversation on this in the future. But for now, thank you so much for going through Figma and talking a little bit about why it helps you do your job. Oh, it was my pleasure. Thank you. Okay. And up next, we have Tristan. Tristan, I believe that this is your first time on the podcast. So we are really excited to have you. And thank you so much for coming on. No problem. And uh, just to get a little context about who you are, we'd just love to hear who you are and what you do here at Clavio. For sure. Yeah, I'm Tristan. I'm an associate data scientist here at Clavio. I'm on the creative guidance team. So all about inspiring our customers creatively. <laughs> cool. So I'm going to pose to you the same question that we've been giving everyone on today's episode, which is what is your favorite tool that you use to do your job? My favorite tool is Git, Mm. a version control software. I use it pretty much every single day, many times a day often. And it's a software that essentially keeps track of many different versions of code or whatever type of files are in the Git project. So it allows multiple people to be working on the same project at the same time and it keeps track of the complicated history that comes out of that i feel like that's a really important one it's a good answer it's something that i think a lot of people kind of starting out in development don't realize the importance of and kind of how could you until things go horribly wrong and then you really need needed to have get in place to save the day (laughs) it's really really helpful when you've accidentally introduced a bug Right. You need to go back and either revert and actually take back whatever changes you made recently or go and investigate how things used to be when it did work and then what changed with uh, you know, the new edits. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess, what's your pitch on Git? Because I feel like, you know, to people listening who might be early in their data science career, who maybe aren't really sold on, on version control yet, and are, you know, just convinced that they can just do stuff in their one file or, or something like that. What are the benefits of Git? Why should we all be using Git? For sure. The main thing is that it's really, really useful when you have many people working on the same files because you don't need to be constantly sending each other everyone's work. You just sync your work up to the, the Git project, and then you can keep your own main branch updated. You can check out other people's branches that they've made, look at specific details, and then work on your own features or what have you, and then merge them in knowing what everyone else is working on and avoiding conflicts. Yeah, it's really such a vastly better way to collaborate on code than, I don't know, it, it's kind of the, I guess, you know, we weren't particularly around for this age of business, but I think that there was an era where all communications were just done in like emails, just people sending documents back and forth over emails. And it's like how Google Docs improves vastly on that. Git is kind of the only solution, I think, really to solving the problem of, of collaboration with complex code problem. So I, how long have you been using Git? When, when did you, I guess, switch over and what were you doing before? I've been using it for a number of years now, basically since grad school. I switched over to using it because the code for my research project was getting very big, very complicated and hard to expand on. And I got to a point where I needed to explore two different types of analysis and it wasn't clear like what was going to be better in the end. And so instead of doing what I had done up to that point, which was naming files, file underscore version one, file underscore version two, I started using Git to explore them independently and concurrently and making sure that they weren't breaking anything. And that was just better for comparing them overall in the end. And it was a good way to get familiar with the, the basics of using Git. And I'm happy to say that I don't name files like that anymore. <laughs> you know, we honestly, we've all been there. I think if <laughs> at some point, at some point, I, I doubt that there are any developers who just knew the best practices right up front. We've all done the underscore one underscore two. Yeah. I, you know, I, it's so much better. I almost like it just saves so many headaches. It's kind of impossible to even compare it. It's just so much better than the alternatives. Are there any kind of downsides of Git? Are there any like, is there any reason that you would ever not use Git or anything like that? It isn't necessarily helpful if you're working on your own projects. Obviously, it does version control, and that's very useful if you're doing your own thing, but it's not necessarily required because you don't need to keep track of that complicated history. It's much more linear development. So it might be useful to you, it might not be. There is a bit of a learning curve to Git. There's a lot of depth to it, a lot of which I'm not even aware of dealing with managing the history and yeah, editing the history of branches. So that's a big barrier to entry and one reason why you might not want to use it. But also things can go wrong. In <laughs> yeah, you can accident, hopefully not accidentally, but you can wipe away any work that you have not fully committed in Git, and then it's just gone. You can also get into weird states that are complicated to get out of whenever you're browsing Git history. 
there was also a time where I updated a branch I was working on improperly. And because of other tooling we used, I accidentally pinged pretty much every developer at the company. <laughs> yeah, we, I, you know, I think we've all been there as well. <laughs> so yeah, these things can happen. But as long as you make sure that you understand what the commands you're running do, you can avoid a lot of headaches. Yeah, you know, I think I think you're right that it's it's kind of totally mandatory for collaborative software projects. But I actually I think that there's a fair amount of value to doing it in your own personal projects as well. Just if you're writing some complex code that's going to be kind of changing a lot over time, and then at a certain point you realize that one part of it isn't working, having that version history is really valuable. And I think you know it's tempting to not use Git for your personal projects, but for people who have not yet used it in a professional environment, would really recommend doing it on your personal projects just to get familiar with it. Because Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I've had situations where I just somehow have totally just trashed the Git environment and like code base. And I don't know what I, you know, like it, it happens early on in your development career. And it's better to make some of those hard learning mistakes on your own your own personal projects. <laughs> Absolutely. And learning how to use it in an easier setting than a yeah. big multi-user right. project. Yeah. It's right. better. Yeah. And I don't know, learning how to use it when you don't need to worry about exposing your company's IP in some way. Like there are a lot of intricacies yeah. to get and it's, I don't know, any command line tool is, has kind of a learning curve. All right. Well, I think that's a fantastic answer. I think that's, you know, that's something that everyone listening should be using Git. If you're not using Git, then <laughs> start using Git. Go check it out. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on and thank you for your time today. Thank you. All right. Next up, I'm joined once again by Zach. Zach, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's been a while since we've had you on. So I'd like to do some introductions again. Could you remind people who you are and what you do at Quebio? So right now, my title is lead SRE. I work with our site reliability and infrastructure engineering teams to add reliability to our platform from keeping the lights on and hoping my phone doesn't ring all the way out to building high throughput network appliances and message queuing systems to let the platform grow without individual engineers having to spend undue amounts of time building up their stacks from scratch. Very nice. I think you're a good person to ask this question to then. What is your favorite tool that helps you do your job? I can answer that along a few dimensions. I promise I don't own stock in them. I don't know if they're public, actually, but the tool. That's, that, that's a good point. We, we <laughs> don't own. This is not paid promotion by anyone. There's, there's no conflict of interest here. If I had one, I would disclaim it. I don't. There is an online yeah. error reporting tool for Python applications called Sentry mm. that's approximately worth its weight in gold at Clavio. So many places I've worked with incredibly talented development teams and staff have still struggled maybe tens of years after a company came into existence and the platform was first deployed, identifying what went wrong that caused a user to encounter an error and why. And there's all sorts of tools in this space, New Relic and Sentry and Datadog, to name a few. Sentry is really nicely tightly integrated with the Python application stack, and it gives you at a glance incredibly easily, pretty much everything you'd need to diagnose a bug that happened when your application ran and, and hit an error. And it stands up to incredibly high volume of error floods that happen after, say, a bad release. It doesn't drop data. It provides without hand tuning or configuration, everything you need. I just love it. Technically, on my day-to-day, -day, one of my favorite 
tools isn't so much a specific technical artifact as it is a set of practices. So mm -hmm. I do a lot of work in Python. I do a lot of work in other scripting languages, et cetera. And while I might entertain moonlighting hours and fantasies and advent of code seasons and much more strongly typed or compiled languages, Rust is very dear to my heart. Most of my day job is moving Python around. Ways to add assurance that you typically have in a more static or classic programming language stack, mm -hmm. like a C++ or a Java, to Python or to these dynamic languages like Python, Perl, Ruby, PHP, are really, really critical. The cold take there is type hints, which everybody knows are sort of available in Python, and they don't quite work the way a lot of people coming from TypeScript think they do, but they're still pretty good. And on top of that are a lot of tools that let your Python sort of have assurances about those type hints at runtime. There's a system called Typing Extensions and a system called TypeGuard that we really like, running MyPy type checkers as part of your CI is killer. This isn't an extremist stance that all code should always be typed and typed is better than untyped. Python is popular for a reason, and I'm really glad I work on it for my day to day, but I think you can get a lot of the benefits are typically associated with not being in a scripting language while you're on it with judicious application of a few tools that are geared towards giving you a little bit of typing when you need it while your code runs. Very nice. A few questions I've asked pretty much everyone who's been on so far is for many of these tools, there are alternatives. For many of these tools, there is another thing that does, if not the exact thing that this tool does, at least something similar. In these cases, is there a particular reason that you prefer these tools over alternatives? I like to apply two things to tool selection when there are many tools available. One is apply my knowledge that programmers dearly love bike shedding in a direct proportion to how little a tool matters or in inverse mm -hmm. proportion to how much it matters. If it is a question of whether or not we're going to output our tests in JUnit versus a different test format, people will spill blood and waste days. If it is a question <laughs> of whether we should stop hemorrhaging customer data because of a critical bug, they won't. Second, I apply the methodology of JFP1. I'm not sure if I'm allowed to say it on this show, but it stands for just effing pick one. <laughs> if there are alternatives, you're not going to know which one you should pick until you've been using one of them for a while. Analysis paralysis is a real thing, and especially mm -hmm. when it comes to tools that are functionally development aids, like IDEs or type checkers or testing tools, etc. It's very, very easy to fall into this sort of strange perfectionism that, if you introspect a little bit, isn't backed by any understanding of what trade-offs you're making because you're so new to the space. Like when I first adopted static type checking for Python, I didn't know what MyPy versus the Microsoft One versus... TypeGuard at runtime were, were for or how they worked or what they did, but I started using them. And after a while, I was able to make more sort of careful trade-offs about what I applied to which projects when and which alternatives I selected. So I guess what I'm going to say is, is I dodge your question, right? You should pick one, any one, so that you can get started and understand the trade-offs entailed in picking that one rather than spend a lot of time applying some complex decision matrix to alternative selection at the beginning of a project. Obviously, you followed your own advice here. You did just pick one. You did learn from them. Are there any particular things that you learned that really stand out for these particular tools in question? For online web services that are there as development aids, talking your testing systems and your error logging systems and your things like Sentry, it was really driven home to me how critical user experience is. Like mm -hmm. I, am, I am a card-carrying stereotype of a developer that unless I catch myself before I open my mouth, will do that, that tropey sneer at the front end thing. Oh, why do you need icon consistency? Why would you worry about font selection so much, et cetera? Mm -hmm. And it's not until you spend all day in this fairly nuanced and complex tool, like Sentry's whole job is to surface the state of a stackful and 
Byzantine programming interpreter running an unfortunately Byzantine set of application code. Sorry about that. And <laughs> we really, really underestimate the impact of UX on people's lives, especially when it comes mm -hmm. to, to interacting with really complex data presentation and data visualization on the front end. And I think whenever we're in that situation, whenever we realize that something is or isn't good UX, it always behooves us to sort of stop, drop, and exercise a little bit of empathy and try to reduce the rate at which we do aforementioned tropey sneering to our colleagues and to other people in the industry in the future. And it really is a potent reminder when using some of these elaborate developer tools online. Some of them are great, some of them are not. And this isn't code for Centuries UX sucks. Centuries UX is amazing for what it does. And I have used some of its competitors that are not as amazing. And it really drives mm. home how much thought they've put in. Yeah, yeah that makes sense to me. It's it's a good reminder, I think, in general, like user experience is something that is easy to overlook. But as you're pointing out, extremely important to actually using the tool or the solution in question. And like, I like banging out unstyled web forms and saying, I ah, just use the internet the way it was intended as, as much as the next arrogant graybeard who posts on Hacker News. But <laughs> really, when you when you do have to to have the experience of spending all day in something, those tiny and seemingly insignificant things really, really pay off. And I'm not going to pretend to understand UX or the principles that drive it, but I have a great appreciation for their depth the longer I do this job. Yeah. Yeah. Good reminder for all of us. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking a little bit about tools to help you do your job. It was a pleasure to have you on. Thank you so much, Michael. I will catch you next time. Indeed. All right. And next up, we have Justina. Justina, I believe that this is your first time joining us on the podcast. So it's great to have you. And thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you for having me. So before we dive into the question, I'd love to get a little context for our listeners. So who are you and what do you do here at Clavio? Excellent question. I am a product manager at Clavio. I've been here for about two years and I work particularly on our SMS offering. All right. Fantastic. So I'm going to ask you the same question that we've been asking everyone on today's episode, which is, what is your favorite tool that you use in your job? My favorite tool? I've thought about this. As <laughs> a product manager, I use a lot of stuff. Use Jira, Target Process, Figma, Google Sheets, Word, all that. And by far, my favorite tool is pen and paper. Wow. All right. This is an exciting answer. This is, I think, unlike any of the other responses we're going to be getting on the show. Tell me a little bit about that. Pen and paper. For me, it is really how I solve some of the hardest problems I have or just like help create structure. So at the, the start of my day, I like to just like make a quick to-do list of everything that's on my plate. So rather than starting the day kind of just all over the place, I have structure, I know what to rely on. But also when I'm working through a project, whenever I'm working through a problem, even the project we worked on together, Zach, something that really helped me is just like being able to physically write it down. I don't know what it is about that act, but once I was able to put pen to paper and draw out, like, this is how it's going to work, it just made a lot more sense to me. And then I was able to use all the other tools. But when I'm really working with a lot of unknowns, I rely on my handy pen and paper. <laughs> so, you know, when you first said that, it seemed a little outlandish, but, you know, you make some good points. And for one thing, I have to agree with you that 
I feel like a to-do list written in pen and paper for some reason, I don't know why, is so much more effective than a to-do list typed up. Like it really, maybe there's something satisfying about like slashing something out on that list or I'm not totally sure. And I believe that there's been a lot of research on note-taking with pen and paper is more effective for memory formation than typing, which I also don't really know why. And it's kind of, I don't know, unfortunate. And so, you know, I guess you're kind of selling me. So it seems like you have to-do list, note-taking, and then is this, do you use it for kind of visual diagramming and things like that as well? Oh, yeah. So I've got this, actually, this black notepad that's with me at all times, even when I go into the office, whenever I'm like taking meetings, I always have it with me just to be like, okay, whether it's a list, whether it's, okay, I want to write out these requirements or like by bullet points of like this question, or even just drawing a workflow. I'm going to be very honest with my job. Sometimes I'm forced to do some complicated math. (laughs) So it's really easy to write that math equation on a pen and paper. I also have to agree with you. There is something so gratifying about just crossing something off your list. Like that, that right there is like an ultimate achievement of mine. You know, it's weird because I do feel like drawing pen and paper diagrams and things like that. I don't know why it just works better than building flow charts through various software. And I, for some reason, technology just hasn't really made a better solution than that. Like even tablets with styluses, for some reason, it just like, I don't know, it just hasn't caught up. It kind of can't beat the pen and paper. Yeah. So actually my last job, when we're all allowed to work in person, and that was a thing in the far distant past, (laughs) something that I did with the other product managers is in the mornings, we all had our calls, but in the afternoon, we're always in the office. And we literally spent our afternoons together. And while it may not have been a pen and paper, we had this like massive whiteboard. And Mm -hmm. whenever we were working through a feature, all of us were sitting around this table and just like, literally beating a dead horse, uh, like (laughs) making sure we fully understood everything that we were about to change and really debating it. And yes, we had our laptops, but like most of the time we had it closed and we're literally writing it down Mm -hmm. and really making sure everyone on the team understood what we were about to introduce. And that was like some of my favorite conversations at that job is just like really brainstorming. And there was something about being in person, but also being able to write it down together and, you know, being able to switch it up when needed. So I'm a little biased. I'm very old school. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to ask if if this extends to other written forms, because I'm also kind of a whiteboard person, have an obnoxious number of whiteboards in my house that I use for a lot of different stuff. Chalk, on the other hand, my opinion, not that great. But are you a pencils ever or just straight up, straight up pen and paper? Ooh. Excellent question. I would say I prefer pen. I just like the feel. It's a little bit smoother, but I'm not going to discriminate against some pencil. I feel like it comes out a little bit lighter. I guess you could erase it, but I much prefer a pen. Okay. Do you have a specific pen that you want to advocate for our listeners here today? Oh, oh, wow. I definitely prefer gel pens, but okay. I'm going to be honest with you, whatever is in my reach. So okay. I am special <laughs> to like the gel pens. Cool. Okay. Well, you know, it's a great answer. Honestly, I feel like you've, you've sold me. I got to, I got to start using pen and paper more. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I, this changes everything. All right. Well, fantastic. Yeah. Thanks for that answer. And thanks for coming on today. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, I hope you enjoyed all of those conversations with people on and working with the data science team here at Clavio. You know, I just realized something. We never actually gave our answers, did we, Zach? I don't believe that we did. And it's, you know, we've had a lot of time to think about it because we've been having all these interesting conversations. Well, no time like the present. What about <laughs> you? What is your favorite tool that helps you do your job and why? It's a hard question that we asked this month, because as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode, there truly are so many tools that we use so regularly. But I think one tool that I really appreciate for its versatility and simplicity is SQL. You know, you don't mm. often think of SQL as being kind of a data science tool specifically. We all know of SQL as, as a tool to extract data, but I think SQL really has a lot of power for data analysis and, and you know, data cleaning and just data exploration. I personally was never taught to use SQL in school, mm. and it's not really discussed on resources a lot, but in my previous job, I was working on a project where I had to compile a outrageously messy data set by tying together many millions of lines from many different, totally different sources of data. And I had written this, I was using R then, and I'd written this just horrifying script that would run for many, many hours that would try to piece together the data into what I'd want and, you know, it'd run for hours. And then I'd kind of see the result and have to make some change. And it was, it was horrible and you know, hard to maintain. And my manager just said, you know, why don't you just make a local Postgres database and just put all the files in there and just do this in SQL. And mm -hmm. it ended up being so much more efficient. And I just realized, you know, sometimes the languages that we use for actually modeling and, and you know, doing the kind of harder data science work are not always the right tools for building your data set or analyzing your data. And I even think, you know, the way that Pandas does a lot of this is, is really clunky. So I think SQL, preferably Postgres, is one of my favorite tools that I use quite regularly. Yeah, it's a good reminder not to overlook tools just because they were developed in the 1970s, right? Like, <laughs> it has stuck around all of this time for a reason. Right. I mean, it's hard to really imagine, like, I mean, for data extraction, like, it's really just the best, in my opinion. I mean, it's really, you know, it's the tool that we that we use, but I don't overlook it for just simple data manipulation tasks. How about yourself? What is your favorite data science tool? I'm going to give an answer that might come off as a little strange to some people because in many ways, it's not actually a data science tool I'm about to say. Google Sheets is one of my favorite mm -hmm. tools to use. The reason is essentially infinite flexibility. There are some things obviously you don't want to do in a Google Sheet or you wouldn't <laughs> want to do in Excel. You know, you, you don't want it if you have to have a clear audit of how data is manipulated. It's actually very bad at that, but <laughs> it is extremely good at serving any purpose you need it to serve, essentially. If you need to share data directly with people, you can do that with that. If you need to build a dashboard, have a tab that has your data, and then have a tab that has graphs that people are going to consume, it's great for that. If you need to do that, except it hooks up to Snowflake, so it automatically populates every day, it can do that too. If you need to, instead of doing anything with data, you need to use it as a data collection method where you're gathering bugs on a feature that was released recently and you just have a column for, you know, put a screenshot of the problem right here. And then another column where you have 
talk about the severity of the bug and like does this is this something that needs to be fixed before it goes live you can do that too and in a pinch you can you know i i actually use it one of the things that i use google sheets for right now is hooking up to google forms to collect our high fives every week you know our team gives high fives just as a show of gratitude every week and i have things set up so i have to do essentially zero manual work to do any of that it automatically populates and all I have to do is look at the sheet and see, hey, these are the high fives we're highlighting this week. And that's all I have to do with it. Yeah. So it is a tool that can do an extraordinarily wide variety of jobs, which, you know, it helps cut down on tool proliferation, which it is good to have many tools that do many things. But I am glad that there are some that I can turn to without having to look at something more specialized unless I have to do that specific workflow more often. Yeah, I mean, Google Sheets is really a great piece of software. It's kind of, I mean, just outside of any data work, you can use it for, you know, I've made Gantt charts with it and and to-do lists and, you know, things like that and just, you know, scheduling and just organization. It's a great tool for that. And it's so, you share it so easily and, you know, you can use Google Apps Script to, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. further customize what's going on in there. But Oh, yeah, we we actually use it to send alert emails on certain processes. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, we have it. We actually have some pretty cool uses of Google Sheets even mm-hmm. uh, here at Clavio. But yeah, for lightweight data science uses, you know, just sharing and, data, and, yeah. simple graphing, you know, like. Yeah, and actually, that's the thing I didn't even get into is is using it for actual data science work. If it's a, you know, if again, if it's a case where you don't need a clear audit trail, and this is kind of just a very quick lightweight analysis, it can be great for that too. You know, just saying, okay, I have this column. Just sum it up, do this other thing with that sum. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily faster than doing that in Python, but it's faster if you then need to share the output. Right. Or at least it can be. I don't know if it is, but it can be. I um, think especially if you're working with non-data scientists. Exactly. And they're used yeah, to using exactly. sheets, which often you are. I mean, your stakeholders, your, you know, whoever's looking at it often is not mm-hmm. a data scientist. And that that's the tool that they're used to using it, that they know mm-hmm. how to filter with and how to, you know, do pivot tables and yep. be lookups and, and such. And uh, yeah, it's a really, really good tool. Yeah. And, and the collaborative nature too. Fantastic. You know, right. it's, yeah. you can... You know, that bug board I was talking about earlier, the entire yeah. reason that that works is because everyone can fill that in. They can right. do it simultaneously while you're all in the same meeting looking for bugs. You know, it's a good tool. It's a good tool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well done, Google. <laughs> Again, we're not sponsored by Google in any way. No, but Not apparently that, we but... should be right now. <laughs> yeah, we should be getting something for this. <laughs> I think with that discussion, that's all the time we have for the episode this month. If you liked what you heard on this episode of the Clavio Data Science Podcast, be sure to follow the Clavio Data Science Podcast. You should be able to do that in just about any podcast distribution network, wherever you're currently listening to this, you should be able to follow the episode. If you liked what you heard, also consider leaving us a rating, leaving us a review, leaving us a thumbs up on Spotify. All of those help us in the algorithm so more people can hear content like what you just heard and hear about some of these wonderful tools that we use and why we like them. In addition, if you liked the episode you heard and you think that someone else you know might like it, please consider sharing it directly with them. That is one of the best ways to make sure that more people hear content like what you just heard is directly make sure that that happens. So consider that as well. This episode was sponsored by Clavio, as all episodes of the Clavio Data Science Podcast are. If you're interested in learning more about Clavio, 
Klaviyo is a unified customer platform for email, SMS, and more, and empowers online brands to own their data and grow on their own terms. If you want to know more about Klaviyo, you can just go and check out klaviyo.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you are interested in communicating something to us, the best person to contact is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That's Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thanks for listening. Have a great month.